gratitude. It has to do with an outpouring of feeling that's of awe and of amazement because of the greatness of the object. And it also has the dimension that the object of your praise is so great that you feel compelled to do so. And maybe as you think about this concept of praise, there are songs that come to mind because singing is a way for us to express praise. It's not the only way, but it is a way. Maybe you think about songs that connect your mind to praise. I think of songs like Behold Our God or the song we just sang, Magnificat, where the mother of our Lord sings this song when she understands that she's about to bring into this world the Savior thereof. Or maybe you think about some great passages wherein we see praise for God at pivotal moments in the lives of people. Maybe one of the most significant early times in which we see this has to do when God and His people are brought through the Red Sea on dry ground and Moses, the leader, stands before the people and he sings this song, The Lord is my strength and my song. I will praise Him for He is my God. I will exalt Him for He is my Father's God. Seeing this amazing moment in his life, he was compelled in reverence to say this about how great God is. Maybe a little lesser event in life has to do with uh, Deborah and Barak as they've defeated the Canaanites in the period of the judges. And as God has delivered them, they stand in front of the people and the leaders lead them and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. And they say that all the mighty rulers should pay attention. I will sing to the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Judges 5 verse 2 and verse 3. It can be a a very difficult thing for us to understand how that should be expressed in our lives. Maybe you say, I've never had a Red Sea moment in my life. I've not seen that powerful impact in an event or at any point along my journey in life. And so I have a hard time understanding how that ought to play out for me. And ever since I was a kid and I was raised in the church, I've always known that there is a a percentage that I don't always know why, nor am I trying to judge why. There's always been a percentage of those for various reasons who don't think it's cool or acceptable to sing out. Or who would say that it was very difficult for them to want to show that they're engaged or enthused about worship. And maybe that goes out into our daily lives, that... There's not this compelling feeling for us to express our gratitude audibly, whether in prayer or song or in conversation. But perhaps it's something different. Maybe it's just the subject that we don't talk about enough. And maybe the very theme itself seems strange and weird to us. It's then that we can look in the Bible and can see various great chapters of Scripture that can help us in this quest to praise God, to give Him the exaltation, to give Him the glory and the honor and the power that's due to Him because of who He is. There's a lot of different places that we could go, but I don't know that there's one that's better than Psalm chapter 33. When we look at Psalm chapter 33, the Greek Old Testament, sometimes called the Septuagint, says that David wrote this. And we think of David and we think of Psalms of praise. 
The Hebrew Old Testament says we don't know who it is, but both would say that it connects to the last verse of Psalm 32, which is attributed to David. But really it doesn't matter who the penman is. Because God is the author. And God is giving us a tutorial on how He is to be praised. Not only does He state the fact that He is to be praised, but He gives us some reasons why. And listen, I want to tell you up front, as we look briefly into this psalm, we're not being exhaustive at all. In, in fact, I've reduced it down. This sermon's original title was Five Reasons to Praise God. There's only four now, but there's certainly an infinite number. I want us to look through this psalm in the heart of this psalm, and I want us to see why God should be praised. It will whet our appetite. Maybe it will drive us deeper into Scripture. As we jump from Psalm 33 to other great places where God tells us about praise. Why should we praise God? Well, the first thing that seems after the the introduction to this psalm is that we should praise God because of His character. If you'll look at verse 4 and verse 5, there are three aspects of the person and the character of God that the psalmist brings to the forefront for us to consider. It's very basic. When you think about character, there are at least three things that help to determine it. You know, you can tell something about someone's character by how they talk, what they say. You can also tell so much about character by what one does. In fact, one can say one thing and undermine that by the things that they do. And so you can't choose. Your character is going to be determined by your speech and it's also going to be determined by your deeds. But another way in which you can determine character is by affection. By what one loves and holds dear. And God's character is demonstrated to us in this psalm of praise through those very three ways. First of all, when we look at God's character, we see what God says. And what He says is right. What He says is true. And how important that is in a world in which it's not held up and esteemed very highly. This morning, I was, as I was preparing my, my lesson, I noticed uh, something that was said about a Harvard study that came out this past week. I don't know if you heard about it or not. But in this particular study, the Harvard professor was doing a study on honesty. And you know what happened? They determined that she lied. She manipulated her statistics in her honesty study. And we think that's just how it is with people. When we think about the people that we have dealings with each and every day, isn't it true that we have a hard time with what people might say? Because people might say whatever in order to get out of legal trouble. They may say what they say in order to to make a sale. They may say what they say simply to get elected. You think about our highest leaders in the country. Have we not gotten to the point in which we have a very difficult time believing anything that any of them have to say? Some of the leading stories this week have to do with political corruption. And it points out how unreliable the words of people are. In fact, when we hear stories of people having character through their speech and their word meaning something, it stands out. I mean, I'll go back almost 100 years for you. Bobby Jones was one of the greatest golfers of all time, and he was in the U.S. Open in 1925, and on the 11th hole, he hit a great shot for length, but it went into the tall grass, and as he lined up his second shot and he addressed the ball, he nudged it off just just barely, perceptibly. 
In fact, there weren't cameras in 1925, so nobody saw it that way. The gallery couldn't see it. None of the officials saw it. But Bobby Jones believed that he did it. And so he called the officials around him and he said, I accidentally uh, nudged the ball. And according to the rules, that's a one-stroke penalty. And so he assessed himself, even though the officials couldn't have said one way or the other. Do you know that Bobby Jones lost that tournament by one stroke? And afterwards, the officials were gathering around and they were praising him for what he did, but he disagreed. He says, you might as well praise a man for not robbing a bank. He says, there's only one way to play this game, and that's with integrity, according to the rules. But you know like I do that that's not how humanity, all of us, in our weaker moments, we may not be as good as the word that we say, but that's not God. God is true to His word. And no matter what period of time we're looking at in Scripture, we see that over and again. At the end of all the conquest in Joshua chapter 21, the theme of the book of Joshua is verse 43 through 45 where Joshua says that everything that God promised came about. And he says in chapter 23 and verse 14, you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that all the words of God has come about. Not one of the words has failed because he's God. And God is good for his word. In 1 Kings 8 and verse 56, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has done according to all the word which he promised his servant Moses. Not one word is failed. And from cover to cover, when we look at God and we listen to his word, if he says it, we know that it's so. And just that fact, that his integrity is seen in his speech and his words, causes us in adoration to fall down before him and say, Behold, you are our God, we praise you. His character is also borne out in what he does. The New Living Translation says it this way, Everything he does is right. I want you to think about how betrayal of trust does so much to harm the relationships that we have. If you can't trust somebody that you're working with, working for, who, who works for you, it's a very difficult life. How often has betrayed trust ended friendships? What damage has it done to homes and marriages? I mean, there are names that are synonymous with betrayal of trust all throughout history, whether it's Julius Brutus or if it's Tokyo Rose or if it's Benedict Arnold or Robert Hansen or from the Bible, Judas, Judas Iscariot. There are names that we associate with those whose deeds are symbolized by betrayal. Now listen, here's something that's important for us to know. We may not always understand what God is doing. We may not be able to figure out what's going on because of the greatness of God. And so what Paul would say is true. When we think about the greatness of our God, the, behold the, the, the knowledge and the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord that He's become His counselor? Or who has given to God that it's been given to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forevermore. Romans 11, verse 23 through 26. No, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Absolutely. Genesis 18 and verse 25. And so when I look at God's character and I see His dealings and His doings, I don't have to worry that He is ever going to betray me, undermine me, or work against me. He's not going to tell me one thing and then do another. And because of this, he's worthy of my praise. His character is also seen in what he loves. 
You know, when we look at the love of God in Psalm 33 and verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the loving kindness. Or maybe your version says the steadfast love. Or maybe it says the goodness of God. That word goodness or loving kindness or steadfast love is that major word in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found 245 times in 27 of the 39 Old Testament books. And just to make sure that we get this component of God's character, it's found in all five major parts of the Old Testament. You'll find loving kindness in law. You'll find it in the history books. You'll find it in the poetry, the major and the minor prophets. So that in every age of life, we see that God's steadfast love, this principle that the objects of His love are the beneficiaries of His blessings and His favor. God's not just all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere all at once. He is full of kindness and goodness and gentleness. On the other side of that, he says that he loves righteousness. And there's a lot of ways we could define righteousness, but I look at a passage like Isaiah 33 and verse 15 that talks about what righteousness is. It's being fair. It's being just. It's being one who shakes their hands because they hold no bribes, who cannot op- will not open up their ears to hear about bloodshed, that is wickedness and unrighteousness, who will close their eyes to what's evil. God says that he loves those who practice such. And the same with justice. Justice is defined for us in Deuteronomy chapter 1 in verse 17. One who hears a small man and a great man alike. And what I learn is that if I do what God loves, then I pursue what God loves. Then God pursues me. But I put all of that together and I see a picture of God. God the being that we're going to see more about in this psalm and learn more about his deeds I see his character. The psalmist, when he talks about our response to God's greatness, he helps to encourage us by saying, look at who he is. And when you see God for who he is, you can't help but to fall down in adoration. But then he moves on and he tells us that we should praise him because of his creation. After looking at his goodness, we see now his greatness. And in all the ways we would look at his greatness, he centers in on the creation. When you look at the creation, you see how God acts. He acts on the land and He acts on the sea. And when He speaks, it happens. And through His Word, it stands firm. It's amazing to be able to look at creation. And we've preached sermons here recently in evidence about God's existence being seen through the cosmos and being seen through the intricate details of this earth. But it's remarkable to think about a God so vast, a God so incredible... But we see it through some of the things that have gone on. I'm sure that you spent some time uh, in monitoring the situation about the Ocean Gate uh, Titan that's uh, uh, an entertainment adventure uh, vessel that was launched from the Canadian waters near Newfoundland. Its design was to go 12,500 feet down to the Titanic. But something happened, and of course, we didn't know what it was. And so all the resources of the most powerful nation on earth set about to try to find this vessel. And the search grid was about the size of the state of Maryland. And yet this 22-foot long, about the size of a minivan, this capsule could not be seen. And ultimately they found out that it imploded. In a millimeter of a, a millisecond, it was gone. 
But we think about how vast just that one little part of the ocean is. And we think about the God who created it being so powerful, so infinite. Sarah Davidson of Reader's Digest interviewed Tom Hanks some years ago and was asking him, this was not long after the Apollo 13 movie came out, and was asking him about the universe. And when you see its magnificence, she says, and when you see its greatness, does it make you think that there must be a divine hand or that there must, it must be a matter of random chance? What do you think when you see this grand universe? And he says, well, you know, first of all, it's a, a mark of the fact that we seem to be alone in the cosmos. Where else? We're the only ones that we know of, he says. And where else can you have a, a, do you need a pair of glasses or a pot for a plant? He said, I, I had dinner with astronaut Gene Cernan one time, and he talked to me about the 17th Apollo mission. And he said, I was there between the time and the space continuum. And I could look at the moon, and then I could look down at earth, and I could see that it was getting to be nighttime in London while it was getting to be lunchtime in uh, Texas. And then I could look over here, and I was looking through the, the black thickness of the velvet of infinity. And that's really the picture, isn't it? Is it design or chance? Is it intelligence or incidence? By the way, Tom Hanks said, I believe that this is beyond our consciousness. I think it would cheapen it somehow to say that it was all plotted out on a graph. And yet, I also believe that it would cheapen it to say that it just happened. He says, I am in awe of the random chance of it all. How safe and how uncommittal. But the Bible doesn't say that. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies show His craftsmanship. Day unto day, utter speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. And the thing is, he says, creation never speaks a word, never makes a sound, and yet we see through that as he gives us the example of the sun, as it appears to us, it starts in one part of the sky, and it goes all the way to the other end, and it starts all over again in the magnificence of this. We are to give thought to what's behind, rather who's behind all of that. And when we do, we think about and it. We, we just take it for granted now. It's been for most of us in, in our entire lifetime or more. But think about sitting on Earth and how we're sending astronauts and spaceships and satellites out into space. And think about how when there's a mission to land on the moon or to land on the International Space Station that they can determine on Earth that they're going to put this thing exactly on a spot and they're able to do that. How can they do that? Because God's universal laws are unchangeable. That you can know with certainty that the earth is in relationship to the sun and you can plot it and you can know that based on that mathematical equation that you're going to be able to trust that it's going to happen. What would it be like if we sent our astronauts and our spaceships out into space with no assurance that they would return? But we see God's orderliness and we see His laws in creation. How do we respond? Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds your hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Your power throughout the universe displayed then sings my song. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art. The psalmist, whomever it is, is telling us here that we should praise God not only because of His character that shows us who He is, but His creation that shows us what He's done. But there's a third reason why we should praise God, and that's because of His control. 
In the heart of the psalm, in the verses that were read to us so well a moment ago by Brother Mike, we see how God is in control of everything. Nothing is out of His grasp. And when we think about the control that He has, we put it in contrast with what we know. That's all we can, that's all we can factor, is what we see. China has 2 million active duty soldiers. India has 1.5 million And the United States has 1.4 active military personnel. And as one who loves our country, I'm thankful for each and every one and the service that they render. And I think about the arsenal that we have, that we have 13,000 military aircraft in our nation. And not only that, but between Russia and the United States, we have 89% of the world's inventory nuclear warheads. But I want you to look back and thumb through the pages of history And realize that there have been some great empires that have come and have gone. Those that were considered unrivaled in their strength. If we're talking about Mesopotamia to Egypt or from Persia to the Ming Dynasty or from the French Empire to the Third Reich. They have come and they have gone. And the psalmist is making a point. That nations, no matter how great they are, they're not in control. God is. God nullifies the plans of the nation. God does not let succeed what He doesn't want to succeed. God allows to happen what He wants in accordance with His overall plan. Now, in an individual moment, we may scratch our heads and wonder about that and wonder, why is God doing what He's doing in this particular event? And we are in in good company when we do that. Habakkuk did. Habakkuk said, why are you using this more wicked nation, Babylon, to punish your people? How can you do this when you can't even look upon evil? You're too pure for that. And he comes to realize that God is still in control and he's working it out. We're studying two great classes on Sunday morning, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And in the Revelation class, perhaps Psalm 33 and verse 11 could summarize the entire message of John in the book of Revelation that his counsel will endure to all generations, no matter how it seems right now. You see, we need to understand that. And at the heart of this psalm, That's exactly what the psalmist is telling us. He is telling us that his plans will be carried out. You've probably heard a lot about top secret clearance and who gets it. And maybe you found out there's a whole lot more folks that have top secret clearance than we thought. The number vacillates back and forth. But right now it's 1.3 million people who have top secret clearance. Have you heard anything about leaks? Or hear anything about whistleblowers? It makes you think that it's hard to keep a secret in Washington, D.C. But you know what? Nobody can get a hold of God's plans and leak them out that He doesn't want to be shared with the world because God, He has going, He's got plans and He's going to carry them out. And He says that in in regards to our, as children of His, serving Him and knowing this. And He sees all the children of men. He's not fooled. For a moment, he sees every detail. Nothing gets past him. You know, it's been a discussion around the Pollard House this week about how sometimes we are we're forgetting some details that we may have used to remember. But, you know, not saying that one of us more than the other of us has been saying that, but something happens in time. That you, you, things get past you, right? That just happens. God never suffers such a moment. Nothing ever fools him. He sees all the children of men. And he's also stronger than the strong. He's stronger than the king, the president, the dictator, whomever it is. 
He is also stronger. His strength is greater than the strength of the soldier that's mentioned specifically. The military assets that he points out. And so that's important, but it also is important when I drive it down to my life. That I can understand that God's plans cannot be thwarted. That's what Job said. After he's gone through his trials and God has revealed himself to him, his first words after that, at the end of God's speeches is he says, now I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And you know what he did as soon as he made that realization? Look at the rest of Job 42. He worshipped, he praised God. And I can understand that as I seek to follow him, I am according myself with God's plan. And I can understand that God's in control through the plans that he has made. But he also sees... He sees what's going on in my life and he has promised me in Hebrews 13 and verse 6 he'll never fail me, he'll never desert me, he'll never forsake me. And he's stronger than my strongest enemy. He's stronger than my greatest trial. But how do I respond to that? When I come to the peaceful resolve that when it, even though there are going to be times in my life where I feel like my life is all out of control. Hey, maybe you feel good right now, but it won't be long perhaps before you're going through a physical trial. But maybe it's not you. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your family. And maybe you're thrown into a tailspin that's even beyond sickness and illness. Or maybe things are going well financially and then along comes some kind of economic catastrophe or crisis for you or your family or your neighbors or your brethren. Or your country. But in none of that is God ever loosed his grip on the control that he has. And out of that I can praise him. Finally, and really this is amazing, that he goes a completely different direction. That we should praise God for his concern. He's talked about his power. He's talked about his justice. But now what we see is God's great concern. If you look at verse 18 and 19, he looks on those that fear him with great concern. And of all the ways that we could illustrate that, I think the best way we could illustrate it is by seeing God's concern in the flesh. I mean, we can see it in the Old Testament, but God gives us the greatest object lesson of all time when God the Son comes to this earth. Frank Graff is somebody I don't know very much about. I know he died at at a fairly early age. He lost a lot of people that were dear to him. He lost his parents when he was barely an adult. He was a minister in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And about a hundred years ago, he wrote a song that's still one of my favorite songs. It asks a question. It's a fair question. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained? I know we have a few Lipscomb graduates. Several years ago, there was a a student who was killed in a car crash near campus and Bill Davis was the dean of students at the time and he was in charge of chapel the next day and chapel usually began with a song and he said I cannot sing today now we have sang today and, and it was a joyful experience but aren't there days in your life when you cannot sing because of the pain that you feel maybe you say with David in Psalm 142 and verse 4 no one cares for my soul and maybe we transfer that to God and we say does Jesus care when my heart is pained does Jesus care when my way is dark hey do a study sometimes of what happens to Paul in the dark He's in a Philippian prison. He is out in the deep during a a shipwreck. 
He finds himself being let down at a wall of, of Damascus in a basket. He is carted by 200 soldiers to Caesarea under the cover of darkness, but he's also comforted by God in Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, in the darkness of night, saying, I have many people left in the city of Corinth. And Paul was able to do his work, but we ask the question, does Jesus care when my way is dark? Fears get magnified at night. And maybe I wonder, does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed? Jesus was tried, but he never failed. But he knew that we were going to struggle with failure, with sin, and with our humanity. I mean, look at David. Can't David help us with that? He says that my sins have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. Psalm 38 and verse 4. Does Jesus care when I've tried Maybe I'm failing over and over again with the same battle I'm fighting. Does he care? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye? You know, the year that Graf wrote this song, he lost his closest, dearest sister. I look out over this group, and I know that within the last 6 to 18 months, you have lost some of you the dearest on earth to you. Does Jesus care? I can't wait when I sing that song, to get to the chorus. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. How do I respond? When I'm confronted with the concern and the care of the Creator, I bow my heart and my head and my knees. And I express my gratitude. I can't keep from it. You know, it's interesting the way this psalm lays out. In the heart of this psalm, in verse 4 through 19, we see what God has done. But what's interesting is how this psalm begins and how this psalm ends. The psalm begins and it ends with our response to that. Isn't this neat? In verse 1 through 3, our response to the greatness of God is that we worship. But in verse 20 through 22, we wait for Him. Verse 1 through 3 is about my relationship with God today. But verse 20 through 22 is about my relationship with God tomorrow. And no matter what panoramic view or part of it I'm looking at, yesterday, today, or tomorrow whether I'm looking at His character or His creation or His absolute control or His deep and personal concern for me, I want to praise Him. That praise demonstrates itself tangibly, audibly. I hope that you'll not ever be ashamed in this assembly to lift your voice doesn't matter what it sounds like, and sing. But more importantly, out in your daily life, to let it be such a great and impactful truth that you can't help but praise Him out in the world. The greatest praise you could give with your life is to submit in obedience to Him. You know, it's so easy for us to signal certain things that right now, doesn't it sound like we're getting toward the end of the sermon? We are. And then a song leader gets up and leads a song. Let's not engage in rote thought. Let's, let's disengage for a moment and realize this is a time that if you need to make a response publicly, that you do so.
whether to become a Christian, to act on your faith, to be baptized, repenting of sins. If you want to do that publicly, we can help you. We want to help you do that. If you're a child of God and you're struggling in your faith and you've reached the end of that rope and you're having a hard time holding on and you need us to encourage you, let us do that. Let's live lives that praise God, that demonstrate that praise. If you need to respond to this invitation, we'll be waiting for you. Won't you come right now as we stand and sing? Oh, Lord, he does.